All right, so we're turning to Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, jumping into the, the next part of the development of this grand, incredible story that Paul is sharing with the believers at the church of Ephesus. And uh, he's just talked about our spiritual possessions, the things that we, that we have because of our relationship with Christ in chapter 1. Remember that long sentence, that chapter 1, verse 3, down to verse 14. And he, and he lists all the things that we have in Christ, and, and there are a ton of them. But now, when he gets to chapter 2, he's going to turn his attention away from what we have in Christ, but, but more to our position. What is it that, that gives us strength, that gives us the ability to draw from? And that's our position in Christ. We are seated, to, to use our word, uh, we are seated in the principles of Christ. And because of that, you and I have significant purpose. Now, as a little girl, when you were growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? Who knows what you filled in? There were all kinds of, of things, depending on your age group, uh, about what was what was in vogue at that time. But if I were to ask you now, what do you want to be when you grow up? You should have an answer. Now, it doesn't it doesn't have the same connotations vocationally. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a whatever. But it should have spiritual connotations that you were you were saved and gifted and 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 put on earth and still allowed to draw breath for a purpose. And and motherhood is a huge portion of that, but it's not all of it. See, in our culture, in the in the Ladera Ranch extended culture of South County, the answer to my question, what do you want to be when you grow up, is a, a wife and a mother. And yes, those are forms and functions and very critically important and part of God's master plan. There, there is no children in the next generation to grow up and, and name the name of Christ if you don't raise them. Yesterday in chapel, how many of you have kids here at Stony Brook? Anybody come home and talk about chapel? What'd they say? What'd they say? What'd they say, Nicole? That they met a, there was a man that was homeless, he lived in the ghetto, and they both were talking about it all night. Did they, did they talk about um, what his parents did to him? At eight years old, oh, he yes, came yes. home from the park. And uh, they weren't there. And he pounded on the door and, and shouted through the, the mail slot. They lived in the projects. And um, no parents. For three days, he laid on the stoop of that apartment, expecting them to come back. And they never did. And that was the beginning of his homeless. And he's, what, 50 someone years old now. We're in an exciting missions week. And those of you that have your kids at Stony Brook, I hope that you are you know, drawing it out of them. We're answering the question, who is our neighbor? And so yesterday we were talking about the homeless. Today we have those that are mentally challenged coming from one of the homes in the area. And then tomorrow we're going to talk about all the Hispanic kids that less than a half a mile right there are part of our community and, and our outreach to them. So I hope that you're, you're pumping your kids for, for, for answering that question, who's our neighbor? And the answer is anyone that's in my world that I can help. Anyone. And uh, so it was really, it was grand. But, but listening to Philip's story, you know, he came in and had coffee with us afterwards, and we were talking about that the underlying, the underlying premise behind homelessness is not mental health issues or addiction issues, which are our usual cultural answers. Uh, but below those are, are, is, the, is the bedrock of, as children, they were disconnected. 
There was no, there was no meaningful uh, relationships. He looked out at those kids and said, you should turn and talk to your teachers because you have teachers. I, I never went to school after I was eight years old. I never had a teacher speak into my life. His parents were gone. He didn't have teachers. Where is he going to get what he needs just to be a, a reasonably well-rounded uh, a, a, a human being, much less... Uh, a child of God and understand their place in God's story. So when you say, well, I want to be a mother in this next season of your life, that is not to be discounted in any way, but it's just not everything. It's just not all of it. Now, at different seasons of your life, it sure feels that way. I get it. You got two or three little ones running around. You're not, you're not, there's no spare time. There isn't, or whatever. But in other seasons of life, there are. And, and what we're going to talk about today is that because we are positioned in Christ, there is a therefore, and, and we want to fill in the blank of whatever the therefore is. But like most discussions, and certainly spiritual ones, we have to start with the bad news before we get to the good news. So in chapter 2, verse number 1, look at the first four verses. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, when I start a, a spiritual conversation with someone, uh, I don't start with, with, uh, with heaven. Uh, I don't start with uh, the blessings that, that belong to the child of God. I start with the bad news. Because if they don't embrace their, their condition, their situation their hopelessness without Christ, then there's no sweetness attached to the gospel itself. And that's what Paul's doing. He's talking first about our predicament. And he says, in our, in our old life, before the Lord, we were dead in our sins. Dead. Now, our world likes to look at people and say, well, they might be wounded. They, they might be bent a, a little out of shape. And, and they need a little counseling to get, to get right. Um, they might be... Um, you know, shoved a little here or there or tweaked a little there. The Bible doesn't use those kind of words. The Bible says before Christ, we were dead. And dead in the Greek, wait for it, means dead. I mean, it's just lifeless. It's not weakened. It's not sick. It's not disabled. The word is necros, from which we get the, the word that's used for dead corpses and so on. Dead corpses do not revive themselves. Prior to my coming to Christ, and him giving me life, spiritual life, I was spiritually dead. Not wounded, not weakened, not needing a, a pep talk, not being needing a, an encouragement. I need revi revive. I need to be revived. I need a resurrection. I need to go from death to life. If we don't understand that before our relationship with Jesus Christ, we had no hope, then we can't look to Jesus as our hope. Dead in sin, Paul said. In, the idea within the sphere of, or another way of looking at it is in the aquarium of. We swam around in sin. And you say, well, you know, mine wasn't really bad. I get it. There are degrees of, of disobedience, even in your children. One kid, their disobedience is a, is a relatively minor kind of thing, and the other kid is, you know, flavor, fla flagrant, flagrant and very flavorful. Uh, there are there are ways to express in that make it look worse or whatever. Uh, yesterday, Philip 
he made reference to himself about being broken. And uh, when we were having coffee, I leaned over to him. He used the term again about how his life was broken. And I put my arm on his and I said, wait, 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 wait a second. You are broken in all the ways that are external. Sleeping on, on, on uh, doorsteps, uh, not having food, uh, finding yourself wanting to go to jail because at least there was food and warmth and somebody to protect you. Those are external brokennesses. Yeah, easy for us to see. But me and my crowd, we hide our brokenness. But it's no different. I'm just as broken as you are. And without Christ, I'm just as me- a big a mess as you are. The difference is not the external stuff. It's the internal stuff. Romans chapter 3 says, For all, and there is no one left out, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible uses two different ways to look at that word sin. One is the idea that you fall outside of the lines, or you don't, you are, you're not following, you're deviating from a right way of living life. The, the classic illustration is Adam and Eve. So you know the story as well as I do. Uh, Adam and Eve were, were created and then given a place to live, the garden. And in the garden, there were animals and, and trees and shrubs and, 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 and things growing. And they were given work there. That, that, was, that was their life. You were to name the animals. You were to, to supervise them, to care for them. You were to care for this land and, 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 you, and till it and use it and work it, farmers. Okay, so, so that was the plan. And had they been obedient, that would have continued. You and I would have been born in that environment with no sin. Man, that would have been all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to Eve when I get there. We're going to have a little chat. <laughs> you know? But, but sin, so the idea of deviating from the right, right way of life, they were given one rule, one, one stinking rule. Out of all the, the things that they could consume and do and have and enjoy and, and have the pleasure of one stinking fruit. Don't eat that stuff right there, one of them. And by choice, they sin. They went outside of the prescription of the, of, of the right way of life. And because of that, sin entered the world. And then we confirm it by our own choices and our own behavior. Can't just blame her. We, we sin in a second way that the Bible kind of describes it. It's, it's the idea of missing the mark. It's the idea of a, of a big target and, and we're, you know, shooting arrows. And whether we fall short or we go over or we go to the right or we go to the left, it really doesn't matter. In our culture, we, we like to, to go, well, I don't sin like you. In, in Christendom right now, what, what is the worst, uh, you know, the ranking of sins? Audience participation, murder, homosexuality. Ah, that one gets rid of right up to the top. So we got you know pedophiles and murders, and we got that violent crime. And then and then in our in Christendom and in in the United States at least, you know, then we take homosexuality and we throw it right up to the top. Just because someone sins differently than we do, who do we think we are? We don't get to point and go, well, yeah, but you're deviating that way. You're, you're falling short. Your, your arrow, you know, kaplunks. Yeah, well, my arrow goes kaplunk. Or over here. Or behind it. When you miss the mark, you miss the mark. It doesn't matter how you miss the mark. Whether you're a liar or a thief, whether sexual immorality is your issue, or, or, or envy and greed, or meanness, or it doesn't matter. Just pick it. We are dead in our sins. Another way to look at it is we're lost. 
We're wandering around with no, with no true north. You ever been lost? You ever been out in the woods and actually get lost? I used to go to uh, Oregon a lot, and uh, I had a dear friend that lived on the coast of Oregon. And I would drive out into the, to where they were doing all the logging, because they'd have logging roads. And I'd get back as far as a logging road would take me, and I'd get out of the car, and then I'd go. I had a, a little sleeping bag with me, and I'd go with, thump out the sleeping bag and crawl in it and lay there and read all day long. It was great fun. I, and it rained, and it was whatever. Well, one day I'm out there, and I'm wandering around, and pretty soon I'm lost. I, I got no reference points. There's no logging roads. I'm lost. There was a panic inside of me. And, and I remember thinking to myself, all right, quit, because I would go this way a little while, and then I go, no, I think I was over here. Then I go this way a little while, and then I go, no, I think it was over here. I said, stop that. Go in a straight line in any direction. It's not that deep of a, a, of a wooded area. You will get out eventually if you go straight. And that's what happened. I went straight. I hit a logging road. I, I found my car. But being lost, what, what about your kids in a store or something? They, they separate from you. What does the look on their face look like? Panic. Panic. That is how we are without Christ. Lost. Separated from God. Blind. Bouncing around. Trying this. Trying that. You know, all of the issues, again, out of my conversations yesterday were, were things like, you know, the reason there's such addiction issues in the homeless populations is it's their form of, of tranquilizers. It just hurts so bad. And the shame of it all and the guilt of it all it's just more than they can bear. The separation. Well, we're blind kind of doing our thing. Or another picture is enslaved. When I was in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, not too long ago, I went to the, to the uh, museum there uh, on United States slavery and all the issues associated with it. And they had a mock-up of one of the, the slave ships that, that were bringing people back and forth from Western a- Africa. And in the mock-up, they had a, 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 the size of a body, a person's uh, shape, and they showed how they were shackled in the, in the, uh, in the belly of those, of those slave ships. And they were bent over with their legs attached and their hands attached for, for days and weeks on, on end. That is a picture of us without Christ, enslaved, handcuffed. Um, we, we, are, we, are, we are a mess. It's not a oh, this is a great way of, uh, of thinking about life. You know, my father one time said to me, I'm so glad you have this, this perspective on life now. No, my Christianity is not a perspective on life. I, I, I got set free. I got given a set of eyes that work. I was rescued from my lostness. I was dead in my sin. And God came along and, and, and gave me a resurrected or redeemed body. We have to understand that to really value our Christian walk. It's not just we chose a, a philosophy that, that's a helpful crutch. You know, I'd rather be a Christian than a whatever. No. Christ has done a work in my heart, and that work reverberates every single day. But it started with, I was dead. I needed rescuing. Paul says that's our predicament. And then he gets into our rescue. Look at verse 4 again. He says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, and it goes on and gives us another, another in order that, or another, this is why, in just a second. Let me, let me not gloss over that. But because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. Because of his great mercy. You know, if you glance back over to that long sentence in chapter 1, you're going to see such words like, we were chosen. We were adopted. We were redeemed. We were forgiven. Um, Barb and I were talking about that chosen word, and I said, "Barb, were you one of those? Were you one of the first three chosen in elementary school kickball game, or were you the last three? And her answer was, "Last three always." You know, I, I, I wasn't last three and, until late, much later in life, and in, in different settings. But you know what that feels like. To, to be ignored. Even as adult women, you go to a situation, you walk into somewhere new, or maybe you don't know as many women in the, in the room, and sometimes you just feel the vibe. You're just feeling a little on the judge side. You're feeling a little like, I'm not sure I really fit in. You're feeling like, mm, I don't know. My this or my that or my those don't, don't, don't you know, measure up. There are lots of subtle ways we do that to people every single day. And the, and the truth of the matter is, is that it is because of his great love. We have been chosen. Why? I don't get it. And in a minute, we're going to talk about how he has, has done that for a purpose. But, but I am astonished here 50 years later, after walking with Christ all this time, I'm astonished that he would have chosen me. There, there was nothing inherent in me for God to go, oh, that would be a good one. No. There was everything the other. There was rebellion and and. And a, and a heart of, I want to do it my own way. Why he would say, I want, I want that one on my team. I don't know, but we were chosen. We were adopted. Uh, yesterday, when, when Philip looked at the kids, he said, I want you to go home and thank your mom and dad for being your mom and dad. There was not a movement in that auditorium. No junior high shifted. No, no kindergarten kid was moving. They were abjectly listening. We, they were not distracted at all. The idea of them not having a mom and dad was more than they could bear. And you and I have been adopted. We got mom and dads, and they were flawed, all of them. The best among them were flawed. No, I didn't come home from school one day, and my parents weren't there. But, but you know, my next-door neighbor, she's one of, I think, 14 or 15 kids. And when the, the last three or four were... Um, over the age of six or seven, uh, the mom and dad moved to California and left the, the kids with the older kids. Just got in the car and drove away. And, 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 and you think about that. You think about what damage that those kinds of things do. And, and yes, maybe we didn't have uh, uh, that absurd, but Linda Wilson, as wonderful a woman as she is, and a phenomenal mom, she's flawed. And if you and if you talk, to, I know, I know. But if you talk to Kate or Jenny, if she were here, yeah, in a in a private moment, they'd say, "Yeah, my mom let me down here or there." It's just the nature of the beast. But we've been adopted into God's family. He he said that one. I want that one. My choice by love. We've been redeemed, bought back. Envision us coming over on a slave ship, and we're up on some some. Uh, you know, box and top uh, in front of a community 
where they're, they're checking out our teeth and, and our feet and how strong we are. And instead, we got bought back, redeemed. No, 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 no. That one's mine. And what was the price? The price was his own blood. We've been forgiven. The very worst among us, and the worst thing you can think of that you've done or not done that you knew you should have do, you should do, that item has been washed in the blood. It has been covered up by the, the great gift of Christ's sacrifice. That, that, that scene of the cross is not a religious scene. It's a personal scene. It's mine. Because the, in, in Colossians, it talks about how he covered with, with his hand. He covered the indictment against me. He stayed on the cross because the indictment, all the listings of, of my sin and my, my shortcomings were written on a piece of paper. Not a literal piece of paper, but nonetheless, he wouldn't move his hands. He wouldn't come down. He could have. He didn't because he knew I was helpless, that I was enslaved, that I was separated, that I was lost. And he wanted to pay the price. So because of his great love, and then it says the word lavished. I love that word. So I, uh, I am one of those people that if I get out in the sun, uh, about an hour and 15 is what it takes the first time. I go beet red, and the next day I turn brown. And Lord willing, I don't peel, I don't, I don't do anything. I'm, that's just my skin. But that, that first afternoon or that first evening after I've been out an hour and 15, let's say I go to Hawaii and I'm in that wonderful sun, and that evening I, I need that large bottle of aloe vera. Now, when I, when I grab that jar of aloe vera, do I do this? Is that the deal? <laughs> it is not the deal. It is a handful, two handfuls. Oh, that feels so good. That's the mental picture of lavish. It's not a dab. The grace of God is not a little, oh, that's good. I can make it through my day now. Mm, little. There is a lavishness of, of this, great, this great love. He says it's a gift of God by grace, through faith, not of yourselves. By grace, classic little definition of grace and mercy. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. You can't earn it, and you don't deserve it, but you got it. That's grace. And mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. You know, you from time to time show mercy on your kids when they're disobedient, break a, break a family rule. You might, you might show some mercy. You might not give them the consequence that that, that that behavior earned. But God, in his great mercy towards us, in offering his son on our behalf, gave us grace and mercy that was not deserved. A classic line uh, that, that's used to define grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. You can't, you can't ask for a way to earn it. There isn't one. And it's it's... It's, it's not something that you drum up within yourself. Even faith itself is a gift from God. Lest we would boast. We would, we would all go, well, you know, God loves me because I do this and I do that and I'm this and I'm that. That's what we would do in our flesh. But that's not the plan. The plan was, no, you do nothing, I do everything. You bring nothing to the table. 
I was making a presentation of the gospel one time years ago, and I, I, I got to the part about, you know, wouldn't you like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And she said, yes, and I'm, I'm making plans right now. I'm going to pray every day for 30 minutes. I am going to be in church every Sunday morning. And, I, and she was making this little list. I had to stop her. I said, sweetheart, those are all wonderful things. But they're the consequences of, of your relationship with Christ. They're not the basis of your relationship. The basis of your relationship is you put your faith and trust. You believe. And that word believe doesn't mean mental assent. It means cling to. You know, if a hurricane was flying through, that, that classic, uh, or maybe a tornado. Let's take a tornado. You remember Twister, the movie Twister? And at the very end, they, they end up in a, in a hole with a bunch of pipes, a plumbing something or another, and they wrap a belt around and, and, and hang on. That is the picture of belief. Belief is not, oh, I believe Jesus, not Hindu. I, Buddha, no, Jesus, yes. That is not the definition of putting your faith and trust in Jesus. It's crawling down in that little hole, grabbing a belt, wrapping it around, wrapping your arms around as tight as you can, gripping with every ounce you got. That's belief, clinging to. It's a commitment to. They didn't just go, well, maybe I'll hold on, maybe I won't. It was, oh my goodness, here comes a tornado. I, I got I to gotta have something to hold on to. That is the picture of the word belief. Now, why did God give us that? Just so we could sit here and go, isn't it great that we have been redeemed? I, I've been saved. Yahoo! I have an eternal future. I have a place to go now when life is challenging. I have direction. I have a sense of peace. These are all great things. Thank you, Lord. Period. Done. No. Look at verse number six. Same, same passage. He says, um, and if God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, and that's a, and yes, he did. Why? In order that, there's our little word again, that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to in Christ Je us in Christ Jesus. Why? For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Keep going so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is the what is the punchline of, of this great grace that we've been given? What is the punchline of this mercy? What is what is the result of this? We have in Christ all of the stuff outlined for us in chapter one. Well, well, two ways to look at it. One is was future, and one of them is now. Let's talk about the future part first. He said, we've been raised up and seated with God. Raised up. There is a promise of resurrection. Um, there, is, there is the promise of resurrection. When, when Lazarus died in John 11, and Jesus comes along, delayed himself on purpose so that, that he could get the glory, and, and he actually ends up at the tomb, he says to the sisters, go ahead, roll the stone away, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get Lazarus to come on out. And he's dead, dead, dead. What do did, what did her sisters say? What, what? Exactly. Lord, you don't want to do that. He stinks. And we're not talking, you know, run over a skunk and it smells for a little while until you drive on down the road. We're talking really, really, really bad. And, and they didn't embalm bodies back then. At best, 
they would wrap the body with a few spices in, in the layers of the cloth. Remember Christmas time, we talked about swaddling clothes, the, the ones that were used for that purpose. So Lazarus has been, he's been wrapped and, and he's got the spices in there, but the sisters know four days later, he is gonna stink. And, and when, God, when God calls him forward, what does he say they, to, to, to the crowd? Loose him. Cut him loose. Because he's coming out like this. He's all bound up. His little feet. He's been resurrected, but he's all bound up. He needs to be loosed. There, there is a promise of, of a resurrection, and it is exampled in, in John 11. Well, for you and I. You know, the big conversation uh, as you get a little bit older, probably not so much right now, but, you know, be cremated or be buried, uh, you know, sprinkled here, not sprinkled there, put there, I don't know, in a box in the garage, whatever it is that the conversations happen about what happens to this body. It really doesn't matter the chemical makeup of this body. The issue is there's a resurrection coming. You say, really, Sherry? Absolutely there is. And I'm going to have a body and I'm going to know you. Now, I don't know what my body's going to look like. I'm voting for no knee replacements. I'm voting for a couple of other things, a little improvement here or there. But we're going to know each other. You say, really? When I first got saved, and I've mentioned this before, when I, when I thought of eternity, I went, okay, something's going on forever and ever and ever, and it's good. Is there something mentally that I can identify with? Uh, uh. And the only thing I could come up with was a, was a carousel, like the one in Disneyland. Because you get on it, and it goes round and round. It's kind of fun. But the more I thought about it, I went, hmm, that, that song is going to drive me crazy about a, a day into it. And that's it. I'm just, yeah, nothing bad's happening. And I'm, you know, I could sit on the horse, and then I could go get in a little carriage part, and then I could get on a different horse. But, I mean, you know, okay, two hours into it, I'm bored stiff. Is that the picture of heaven that you have in your mind? Or, you know, we're floating through whatever, you know, harps and violins. And if you have not read this book, I want you to go buy it. It's Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Go get it. You don't have to necessarily read it cover to cover. It's really thick and it's got all kinds of stuff in it. And I don't buy everything Randy has to say in that book. But Randy opened up my eyes to what heaven is going to be like. And, and just read those chapters about what heaven's like. I'm going to know you. When I see Selene, it's going to be, hey, Selene, how are you? I, I'm, I'm going to have meaningful things to do in the future. In fact, the, the, the scripture talks about us ruling and reigning with Christ for all eternity. There is meaningful work. So, well, wait a minute. I was, I was really, really looking to forward to retirement. What, what's this work thing? Look, there is no biblical evidence for retirement. You show me a verse. It isn't there. Yes, there are different seasons of life. And our ability to function... I'm looking at Suzanne, <laughs> Marsha. We're similar groups. Not quite. But, yeah, there, there's differences. My, my ability to do certain things is, is not like it was when I was 30 years old. For sure. Different seasons, energy levels... And, and, and so on and so forth. Forgetfulness. Oh my goodness, am I forgetting people's names? I, it's horrible. You know, or, or a, a, a term. I used to make fun of my dad because we'd be in a conversation and he'd say, What's that thing? You eat it, it's round, you cut it into slices. Pizza, dad, pizza. How come you can't remember the word pizza? 
I, I now know why you can't remember the word pizza. Yeah, there are different different seasons, different things that go on physically and emotionally and, and even and, and mentally. But stopping all work, is that your goal? See, that's a wrong attitude about work. We like to think that work came as a, a result of the curse. Back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. That when, when, when they were found out, when God showed up, when they got confronted with their sin, we think, okay, now he gave it to them. Now they had to work. No, now their work was no longer joy-filled. Now their work was filled with thorns and thistles and, and tilling the ground was hard and she had great pain when she delivered babies. Yeah, it got much worse, but work itself was not part of the curse. There was work before and there is work coming. But the difference is the kind of work. We don't work in a system that rewards the right things. Jesus is not on the throne. He's not in our government. He's not in our companies. He's not in our corporations. He's not running our cities. What would it be like if he was? I want you to look at a verse in Daniel. Way back in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. And I gave you a number of references just to, to tantalize your mind about what's it going to be like as we are, we are raised up and we are seated with God. Daniel chapter 7. If I can find the book of Daniel, that'd be really good. Kill Daniel. There we go. Chapter 7, verse 27. Daniel seven twenty-seven. He says, um, he's, he's talking about what it's going to be like uh, in heaven. Then the sovereignty, the power, and greatness of all the kingdoms <laughs> under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Some translations say handed over to the saints. This is not saints like, like uh, the Catholic Church would deem certain people to be saints. The word saints in our Bible just mean holy people, people who have been, been redeemed. I, I'm a saint. You're a saint. I've, I've told this before. I don't remember if I've told you, though. Years ago, the kids were, were, were playing uh, in a league, same league we're in now. But I was with the kids, and it was a basketball thing, I think. And one of the little kids at the game looked at me and said, Sherry, or Sherry, Miss Whirl, uh, we play St. Catherine's and St. Edward's. How come we're not a saint? And I said, oh, we are. We're St. Onibrook. <laughs> we just don't put the period on our jerseys. Pretty good, huh? We, we're saints. Well, what are, what are these saints doing? These saints have been given sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven. They're, they're handed over to these holy people. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Who are the rulers? Raise your hand. Yes, there we go. There's the rulers. God says, I have a purpose for all this that I've done in you. Uh, for you in the future here it is and now let's talk about now you are back into ephesians you are at the end of of verse 10 you are created to do good works for him and it was prepared for us it was carved out from from god's economy there is work he says you in in verse number 10 you are god's handiwork or some translations might might say uh masterpiece in, in the Greek, it really means you are his poetic expression. When God, when, when God saw that, that you were going to be born, he created. It was not happen chance. It was not accidental. It wasn't, gee, dad's DNA and mom's DNA and it comes together and now they're Sherry. God designed 
you and me. And in that design, he made certain that there were things there that could become his masterpiece. The word masterpiece is like like a trophy. You know how your kids, when they gather trophies for or you know all the things that they just participate in. But anyway, that's another story. You know, they got a shelf full of trophies. You know, this is my soccer, this is my baseball, this is my whatever. God's got trophies. I told you, I think, last week that God has pictures on his refrigerator. And, and they're pictures of us. These are my kids. He's like your grandparent. You know, your grandmother that, that has, you know, the old before, they kept them all on their phones. They kept them in a... That unfolded. Here are, my, here are my grandkids. That's God. All he's got to do is mention Marsha. And he goes, Marsha. This is Marsha. Because she was created as, as his masterpiece. It wasn't an afterthought. It was deliberate. It was, it, was, it was not experiential. It was not, oh, well, if it happens. No. He had in mind a set of gifts, abilities, opportunities, time when she was born, culture she was born in, and things that were true for her life that are supposed to be true until the day we bring our last breath in. We don't retire from working for God. We work after our salvation is secure. We don't work to get saved. But after we have been saved, there is no future except good work. Work that brings joy. If you've ever had a, an actual job, a career, where you loved getting up in the morning and going and doing it, you know that is entirely a different experience than a job that was drudgery. As a mother, if you, if you look at your kids rightly, there is great joy in the, in the, in the demands, endless demands of being a parent. There is a difference when your heart is attuned to what it is that you're doing. It's great joy. He has given us that great joy. We just need to be reminded of it. Now, what did he give us so that we can do this work? Well, lots of gifts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and following, he says, Each one should use whatever gifts he has received to serve others. To serve others. One of the reasons I'm challenging the kids to, to come to understand who your neighbor is is so they'll realize that is incumbent on all of them. We don't get to pick and choose. We have responsibilities to serve others. Now, how, how, does, he, how does he equip us? First off, he gives us spiritual gifts. You say, well, yeah, but I, I don't think I got one. Mm, no, that is not true. Every single child of God that's received the Spirit at the point of their salvation was endowed with with one or more spiritual gifts. Now there are at least three pages or three places in our Bible where spiritual gifts are mentioned. Romans twelve, first Corinthians twelve, first Peter four. I listed them for you. Look at those look at those gifts in short form. In in Romans twelve, prophecy is mentioned, serving is mentioned, teaching is mentioned, encouraging is mentioned, giving is mentioned, and showing mercy is given. Now, is there a spiritual gift in there that reverberates in your heart? Yep, that's, that's the way I think I'm bent. That's the way I approach life. That's, how, that's, that's my default. I, I go there. It's not that I drummed it up. It's not, it's not that, that I, I, I chose it and then developed it. Yes, there is developing of spiritual gifts afterwards, but, but it is a gift. I believe that I have the spiritual gift of teaching. Now, I never went to school to learn how to teach. I, I, you know, in my early days, I stood in that park in, uh, in Fullerton and I preached to the squirrels. 
And I, and, I, and I went there every week. Don't laugh at me. It's true. I had many salvation uh, decisions. I had several, <laughs> several surround, surrendered to the mission field. It was amazing. Lots of, lots of coming forward to the altars at the end of my... Yeah. I, I just sensed in my heart that, okay, that's probably how I'm going to spend my spiritual coinage is, is by, by being a teacher. I'm going to serve others by teaching. And I went to Bible college so I could get better at it. And then I went to seminary so I could get better at it. But I believe that out of nothing that I chose, not like I went, oh yeah, click, it is the bent that, that my soul has. You have a spiritual gift. You say, well, I didn't notice it there in the Romans 12. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. Some have the message of wisdom. The ability to say the right thing. The message of knowledge. A person of deep faith. A person who is able to be involved in healing. Miraculous powers. Prophecy. Distinguishing spirits and tongues. And then in 1 Peter 4, he he grabs two again, speaking and serving. Now these are not ranked. We don't get to say, well yeah, that guy with a message of wisdom, they're at the top of the heap. And the one that's got serving, oh, well, yeah, I get serving. It's not like that. It's the way that you were built spiritually. It's your primary bent in which to serve others. It's your primary way to turn off your dumb phone. Um, It's your primary gift that you can rely on. It's the resource that you can plug into. If, if I were, if I, if I up and moved to, you know, uh, West Africa and I was plunked down in a little village somewhere there, before long, I'm going to be teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't be washing toilets or, or working in the fields or driving a truck uh, as part of my outreach. All of that might be very true. But the thing that I'm going to gravitate to, the thing that's just going to, mm, it's just the, the way I'm built my spiritual gift being teaching. You should discern your spiritual gift or gifts. And there are lots of ways to do that. There are some online surveys and quizzes you can take. There are some books you can buy. You can turn to your your neighbor, your best friend that knows you really well on a spiritual level and say, what do you see? Where where, where do you see my spiritual gift maybe showing some, some, some evidence? And once you've determined it, lean into it. If it's serving, then serve your brains out. If it's encouraging, then get your mouth open. There shouldn't be a day go by that you're not writing emails and notes and making phone calls. Because that's what you're supposed to do. You weren't saved to go, isn't it great? You were saved to work. There is, there's another category of just God-given talents. I think beyond our actual spiritual gifts, there are talents. People like, like uh, McKenna, music. Well, I think God gave some people the ability to do music, whether it's instruments or singing. Now, I didn't get that. I wasn't even in the room when they were distributed. (laughs) Wrong line. But that just comes natural for her. It's a God-given talent. There may be other kinds of talents that you have, dance or hospitality. Um, I think I mentioned I was at a, a woman's home not too long ago, and she's a, she lives in an older section in Mission Viejo, and, and, and they have not replaced her cabinets, and they have not done countertops in her home, and the flooring is the original 1982 flooring, and she couldn't care less. 
Her home is open and hospitable, and she is driving folks into there for simple meals. We had a, a bowl of soup together, and I never had more fun in anybody's house in South County. No countertops, guys. Nary a bit of granite. <laughs> what about things like working with your hands? Gardening or, 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 or cooking or even mechanical abilities. Um, you and I have talents. The gift of gab. Some of you can walk in a room and you light up the room. You are just capable of, of grinning at someone and smiling and drawing them in. I can't do that. I, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. So when I get in a room, I'm going to try to do that. But I'm telling you it's hard work. Some of you, it's not work at all. If some of you had to teach a lesson like I teach every week, you would be up hours and hours and hours trying to put it together. For me, it's not that hard. Gift of gab. Are you using it? Are you a greeter at church? Get out there. Smile at people. Wave at them. Say good morning. Invite them in. Make them feel comfortable. Whatever your gift or God-given talents might be. And then there's something else. God-given opportunities. In some seasons of life, you have more time. Marcia has more time than Kate. Because Marcia's kids are grown. Her husband passed away. She has a lovely home and opportunity to be in South County. She has more opportunities than maybe somebody else with time. So we would look at Marcia and say, well, what are you doing with your time? Or, or some of you, it's networking. You, you have a, a network. Uh, maybe because of something you did for a living or some opportunity. Juliet, I, I was hearing this morning, a speech pathologist, which means she's running into young families and young children. What an opportunity. She's got a network to serve and to encourage and to do her spiritual work. It's right there in front of her because of what she does. Or maybe for, for some, it might be, that you worked at a certain place and they pour all this training into you, you got very good at whatever that is. Now, is there some place in God's business of serving each other where that could be useful? No longer getting paid for it, maybe. maybe, But, but, but relying on that, that, that training that you got in another sphere. It doesn't really matter, guys. The bottom line is we're supposed to be using all of this. We were entrusted with good works for a purpose. And it says in 2 Timothy 1.6, to fan into flame the gift which God has given you, whether it's time or an actual skill or a talent or a spiritual gift. Fan it. Make it bigger. Make it brighter. If you... If you if you are in a season of life where there's not a lot of spare time, fine. Maximize what you got. If you got an hour on Tuesday afternoons, then that's the hour you invest in serving others. You say, well, what can I do for an hour? I don't know. You're sitting at a, at a, at a practice every Tuesday and Thursday because the kids are playing whatever. And, and you could take your laptop and sit there and maybe write notes of encouragement to people at church. Maybe, maybe you could go to the gal who, who's running the children's program and say, I know you have to cut out and staple and goober all that stuff for the kids' ministry. Put it together on a Sunday afternoon or on a Sunday. I'll take it home. And during those moments that I have, I'll, I'll staple, I'll cut, I'll goober. 
It just takes a little effort to say, where? How could I? Whose life could I be involved in? Maybe it's just one person's life. We're not talking about necessarily, you know, thousands. Maybe it's the gal next door or the lady down the street or, or, or an older person in your church. We were gifted both with our salvation and, and as his masterpieces for a purpose. Let's not, let's not ignore that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the truth of it. We are your workmanship. We are your masterpieces. We have been created for a purpose. That which we are supposed to be about is serving others. We live in a selfish culture. A culture of me and mine and my house and my stuff. And help us to, to, to think long and hard about what you have for us. And then help us go do it. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.